My name is Mike Campbell. I have been here a number of times over the last year, um, and so I'm thankful to get an invitation to come back and be with you all. I told Josh this week, I wondered if I would ever get invited back. He's like, why don't you just come? Come on, fine. And I said, all right, thank you, I'll do it. And so this morning is a little glimpse of my heart, but that is really meaningless because it's a larger glimpse of what is on the heart of God. It's what is on the heart of God, and I hope that it'll be on your heart. I have said this so many times that I have been here over the last year. The only thing that I really care about is making disciples. That's it. I just love hanging out with people. We've spent time at coffee shops together. We've hung out late at night together with a lot of you in this church. I just love getting together and talking about what God is up to in the lives of his people. It's what we're called to do. In fact, it probably is the greatest mark of the successful Christian life. Whatever that is, the mark of those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus is whether or not we are making disciples and giving our life away and replicating ourselves in the lives of people that, that hang out with us. One of my motives has been for the last 20 years, I just want to work myself out of a job. I want to spend time with you and give you my small group. I want to spend time with you and give you my men's group. I would like to raise you up and let you be the pastor, and I'll go pastor somewhere else. That's what we're called to do is to give our lives away. Now, let me insert this. Nobody told me to t say this this morning. It's been a number of months since I've been here. I walked with this elder team for about a year. I'm just going to tell you, I don't know how many of you in this church are brand new or have only been here a few months, but let me just tell you, this church is on good footing. Amen? This church has healthy, strong, godly men and women that are leading in every ministry of this church. This is a good place to be. So if this is your first Sunday here, or your fourth Sunday, or your 20th Sunday, I'm just telling you. We just talked about it, didn't we, Dave? I'm just telling you, this is the place to be. There's a lot of good things that are rolling out of this place. There's good staff, there's good men, there's good women, there's good leadership, there's healthy teaching on Sunday morning. I listen to every sermon. When I'm not here, I listen to every sermon. You've got a good leader in place. You have good leadership in place. All right, I'm back to it. Jesus did this whole thing of finding 12 guys. One went rogue. He had 11. He spent time with those 11. He championed them and he challenged them. And he said, listen, I need you to go give this stuff away. I need you to find some people. And some of those men became writers of the scripture. Some of them became teachers in and of their own right, but they were just like me and you, regular folks, regular folks, nothing special. In fact, probably less special than some of you. And yet that's what they did. In fact, it ended up being Jesus' final marching orders to his men before he ascended to go spend time with his Father in heaven. He said, I just need you guys to go and make some disciples. I need you to teach them some things. I need you to baptize them. I need you to give them everything that I've given to you. And oh, by the way, you're not going to do it by yourself. I will hang out with you. My spirit will be here to guide you. It will provide some strength to you. Uh, it seems like a big task, but I'll be present. You'll feel my presence. And so that's why I think I can say with some authority this morning that it is the mark of the successful Christian life. The successful follower of Jesus is replicating themselves and giving themselves away. And so I want to pray again because as Josh was praying with me this morning, I don't want it to be my words. 
It needs to be the Lord's words. You don't need to hear this from me. You need to hear this from him. You need to hear this from Paul this morning. So let me just pray. Jesus, show up. Show up that we would respond, that every knee would bow, and that every tongue would confess that, that your words, you used men on this planet to live out your words in Scripture, that these words that we'll look at today were ordained and purposed for us today in 2022, that there'd be some amount of wisdom and truth in there, that it wouldn't be me, that I would significantly decrease, and that you would significantly increase, but we could leave a little messed up this morning. That we would leave a little challenged, a little different, trusting your word in Jesus' name, in your name. Be present today. Amen. The word is one verse this morning. Just one. It's Philippians 3, verse 17. It's on the screen. It's one verse. It says this. It says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Brothers, join in imitating me. One verse, Paul. Now, if I am just looking at that out of context, with no understanding, <coughs> excuse me, of who Paul is, I might think, man, who does his brother think he is? This dude's got a little pride. He's got a little bit of ego. He's telling me to look at him, and I see the back end of the verse where he says, also look at some other people as well. But if anybody ever stood up to you in front of you or in front of you and sitting down at breakfast or lunch and they said, hey, man, just keep your eyes on me. I got this thing figured out. You'd be like, oh, heck no. <laughs> in a hurry, you would do that. So let me give you a little context because Paul does have a right to say this. He absolutely has a right to say this, and he's actually saying it with great context and great humility. And so I want you to understand why he would say this verse Real quickly. So he's saying this, he's writing this to this church at Philippi. Now, the church at Philippi looks a little bit like the church of Northwest Arkansas. Looks look a little bit like the church in the United States right now. They're a little bit materialistic. They've lost their way a little bit. They're chasing some things that maybe they shouldn't chase. They've gotten a little bit immoral. There's some brokenness among their leadership and among their people. And so at this stage of the game, the reason he's writing this letter is they need somebody to step up with some boldness and somebody to step up with some courage and say, hey, look at me, look at me. Just keep your eye on me for a moment. And then I also want you to watch a few other people. So the church needed somebody to step out and take a little risk. And that's exactly what he did. So that's fact number one. Fact number two is this. Just a few verses before, you're gonna have to trust me on this because I don't have them on the screen. Just a few verses before, Paul says this. He states, I'm not that perfect. I've not already reached the goal of the Christian life, nor have I become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of, of that for which also I was laid hold of by my Christ Jesus. I am, in fact, not the only worthy example. There are other people that you need to keep your eye on. And then he goes on to say, a little bit earlier than that, in fact, I'm not even righteous. Any righteousness that I have has nothing to do with me, Paul, or me, Mike, or Josh, or anybody in this room. It has everything to do with the fact that Christ has made me righteous. All my righteousness comes from him. Without him, I am nothing. But with him, oh man, I'm something. And so if you go beyond verse 17, beyond the verse on the screen, in fact, while I'm talking, look this up on your phone. Get this in your, script, in your Bible because we're going to keep going back to this. 
If you look at the verses right after, he says this, Many of you walk, and I've told you this often, that you are enemies of the cross. Your end is destruction. God is their belly whose glory is in their shame. You mind earthly things. And then scripture says he's saying this in tears. He's brokenhearted. And so he's reminding us as followers of Christ in this culture, in this context, particularly to this church, and I'm saying it to this church, that we need as believers, as followers of Christ, we need godly people that we can look at. Amen? We need some people that we can put our eyes on and say, hmm, there's something about their life that I resonate with. There's something about their life that I wish I had a little bit more of in my own life, but it's going to take a little bit of effort because I'm going to have to hang out with them. I'm going to have to spend time with them. There's plenty of good or bad examples to observe, but all men need good examples. Fact number three about why Paul said this. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He is guarding himself against pride. He doesn't stand up and say, guys and gals of the local church today, just look at me and nobody else. Because if he did that, what would that become? It would become a cult. Instead, what he said is look at other people as well. Don't just look at me. Take your eyes off of me and look at those around us. This is going to take an army of people, not just one. I love that. That's why I love the team approach to ministry. That's why I love the team approach to teaching from the pulpit. That's why I love the team approach to leadership and elder, and elder teams and staff teams. Because it's never about one person or one personality or one agenda. Amen? Because when that happens, things happen. Because we just saw in Scripture, left our own devices, we are unrighteous. And that's where we will default. I just taught a couple weeks ago on Sodom and Gomorrah. Someday I'll hopefully get an opportunity to share that story here. But we know that story. That story was full of wickedness. It was full of what happens when we create our own ways and our own agenda and our own rules and our own guidelines. There's three things I want to share with you today. It's this practical method for making disciples, and it's just three things. Number one, that there's a mandate in Scripture. There is a mandate in Scripture of a way that we are called to live. Number two, to remind you that you and I are the model. And that's a little bit frightening, but we are the model. And number three, that we should model the mandate. There is a mandate, we are the model, and that we should model the mandate. The mandate shows us that the responsibility of the disciple is to become a disciple maker. The model reminds us that we are an incarnational example of the process. And modeling the mandate means we take those two and we combine it and we put some application behind it and we live it out. Not complicated, but hard. The mandate is a challenge. The mandate to make disciples calls us up. I want you to look at these two words. I'm going to unpack them in a little bit. Tupas and paradigma, the mandate. Tupas and paradigma, the mandate, the Greek. But before I get into that, I just want you to visualize those words. There's something happening in that verse. You've got it on your phone or in your Bible. There's two things happening. The first thing is this. Paul has to show it, and then he has to say it. And the Philippian leaders who are reading this, they have to see it, and they have to submit to it. And so the verse says this, what? Join in imitating me. 
What else does the verse say? It says, keep your eyes on those who walk. Those are present tense use of verbs, not past tense. There's present tense. You've got to keep your eyes on me. You've got to join in imitating me right now as you walk. As a follower of Jesus today in Bentonville, Arkansas, we cannot keep our eyes on something else. We are told in Scripture to join in watching and walking and imitating and keeping our eyes present and focused right now, not past tense. This is not a uh, 2,000-year-old command or mandate. This is a current 2022 mandate. Paul is boldly urging us to follow. Here's what I want you to hear. That means the following, here's the mandate, that means that the following of right examples should be the continuous and consistent activity of every one of us as followers of Jesus. I'm going to say it again. That the following of right examples should be the consistent and the continuous activity for all of us in this room. The mandate for all of us, I'm going to say it one more time, is that we would have our eyes open, that we would be walking in, that we would be imitating, that we would be looking for those around us that have a little something different that have something that we want a part of, that have something that we are curious enough about that we say, hey, can I, can I take you to Onyx and grab coffee? I've got a couple questions. Hey, do you think we could grab some lunch or something? Maybe we could hit up Fruitalicious and we could just hang out and get a boba and you could, I've got like three questions I need to ask you. I went out with this dude last week and um, we were, where were we? We were, at, we were at First Watch and he just said, hey man, I got one question. I said, okay, what is it? He goes, I'm getting ready to be a new dad in November. Give me one piece of wisdom to be a new dad. What do I need to do to make sure that I don't screw up on this thing? And I gave him like five. He probably didn't want five. I get, he only wanted one, but I couldn't stop talking. But he saw something in this older guy who has four kids and said, man, there's something there. I want to ask this guy a question because I'm getting ready, uh, getting ready to have my first in November. The right example should be the consistent and continuous activity of every one of us. We should be looking. We should be looking. As a follower of Jesus, as a believer, as a Christian, whatever you choose to call yourself, in this very moment, you are following somebody's example. Somebody along the way has shown you something, and you have spent the last several minutes or hours or days or weeks or years living out that example right now. It was how you got to church this morning. It was why you came to church this morning. It's how you carried yourself yesterday on Saturday and what you did Friday and and how you lived out at work five days last week. It's because you were following somebody's example. Somebody influenced your life in some type of way. We are called, the mandate, to give positive and selective attention to those who set the right example for us. That's what we're called to do, to keep our eyes open, to look around, to keep our eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. That's what our scripture says this morning. The word in there, to keep or to mark, is this word skopos. The word skopos means to scope out, to look, to search. We've all used that term. Hey, I'm going to go scope this out. What does that mean? It means to keep our, there's something there that has drawn us in that we're intrigued about. And so we're called to scope out one another's life, to scope us each other in the Greek. You keep moving through that, and you see that there's this other word that finds itself in the text, and that word is the tupas. And the tupas means a type 
or to mark or a certain impression. And that's what's happening in the scripture. The word type is this special word and it means to strike. So to make an impression. Who has made an impression on you? Who has been your tupas? Who has been your paradigma, your, your example? That's the mandate, to find them, to lean into them. And oh, by the way, God's going to call you to be the same. It's the same word that Thomas used in John. Remember doubting Thomas? Man, he wasn't sure that Jesus was who he said he was. He wasn't sure that, that Jesus truly came back. And, and in the scripture, he said, I'm looking for a mark or a type. I'm looking for a tupas. And I want to see the impression. I want to see the nail marks in his hands. And if I see those nail marks, that would be the type that I would believe. Those are two significant words. They find themselves all throughout scripture. In fact, Paul, you know, Paul's a stud. He wasn't a stud. He used to be Saul of Tarsus, and then he had this amazing uh, interaction, you know, with, with God in Acts 9 and he, on the Damascus Road experience, and, he, and he, he changed his life. His life was radically changed, and he becomes this disciple, this follower of Jesus. He writes a massive chunk of the New Testament, and we see in 1 Thessalonians, you see it in 1 Corinthians, you see it here in Philippians. He uses this word example over and over and over and over. It's a significant, significant word. So... Here's the question. Here's a practical question I think will probably eat at you a little bit because I've had to read it 20 times this week. You'd only have to hear it once. Is my life worth copying? Would I want to live in heaven among a society of believers who have lived their lives by the impression that I have made on them? The word translated example means to copy, to pattern. So the Jesus follower, the disciple maker, the teacher makes a self-conscious effort to provide the right example and to appeal to the disciples to follow that example. When I was a kid, uh, there was this evolution in school. We went from chalkboards to dry erase. Now you have the smart board and now we just have Google Docs or whatever we're using. And I remember as a kid, I got in trouble all the time in school, all the time. And in, when I was in, uh, before you go to the principal, or you'd, this is going to be shocking to some of you, but you go to the principal and you would get spanked, right, in the principal's office, which is where I lived. Uh, but then when that didn't work, they said, we just need you to stay in at lunch and just write sentences. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and the sentence would be, for me, uh, I will not make people laugh in class. <laughs> write that a thousand times. And so you go to the chalkboard or the dry erase board and you would just write that sentence a thousand times. Or you'd write on a piece of paper and you turn it in. We became really good at manuscripting and copying. And that's what I'm talking about. Paul, in essence, is saying, copy me. Copy these other brothers and sisters. But we are called to copy one another. We're called to copy the good example. The good, the good example. Now, speaking of that, let's transition to the second one. We're called to model it. We're called to model it. And here is the, is, the, is the verse, or not the verse, rather, but the statement. The truth is that people will either take you as an example of Christ, or they'll take your life as an exemption from Christ. That's heavy. 
They're going to look at you and they're going to say, oh man, Josh, he is an example of Christ for me. Oh no, no, Josh is an exemption from Christ. Which is it that's going to be? The New Testament model tells us this, that we are called to live it out, to be this model. That is the mandate that we would keep our eyes open, that we would see what is around us and that we would live it out. D.L. Moody says this. I love D.L. Moody. I love his reading. I love his pastoral leadership. He says that you could line up 100 men and women. One of them, out of that 100, might be the person that's reading the Bible. The other 99, they're going to watch you. They're going to live it out. In essence, you're going to be the fifth gospel in their life. When they keep their eyes on you, they're going to see how you live it out. You see, everything that I say and everything that you say is a profession of faith. Everything that comes out of your mouth is a profession of faith. And everything we do is a promotion of faith. But if I do those two off, that's a prevention of somebody else's faith. I'm going to say it one more time. Everything that comes out of my mouth and your mouth is a profession of faith. But everything that we do is a promotion of faith. But if those two are wrong, then it's nothing but a prevention of faith. Make sense? We have this daily influence, whether we're conscious of it or not, we have influence. I've always said, and I love leadership development kind of talks, that everybody in this room is a leader. You're just either a really good one or a terrible one. But we all are one because we all have influence. We all have influence. And maybe your influence is just at home. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at work and church and home. Maybe it's in your community. But you have some. And everybody's watching. And we, this is a silly illustration, but I, I, I think of this because if I'm out at the lake and I throw a, a stone in the water, I can for the most part say, oh, I'm going to try to hit that back corner and I'm going to throw that stone. And I can get close to it. And I can kind of control that, but what I can't control is the ripple effect. The ripple effect's going to be huge. And I can't control how big or how wide that's going to be. And that's the same thing with our influence Historian Robert Wilkins said that Christianity is not merely audible. It's not just verbal. It's also visual and it's tangible. So I have to have models in my life. I have to have some mouthpieces and some models. I have to have some pace setters and some proclaimers. I have to have some examples and some exhorters. And that's one of the roles that Jesus did. We see that in 1 Peter 2. He was He was the model. He was the example. The key for all of us in this model as disciple makers is this. That a disciple has a regular relationship with their disciple maker, their teacher. A disciple receives revelation or systematic truth from their disciple maker. A disciple repeats the truth to other people. That's 2 Timothy 2.2. A disciple has an increasing resemblance over that person that's discipling them, their disciple maker. And a disciple becomes a reflection of their teacher or their disciple maker. A disciple and discipleship and disciple making is life and truth transference through the context of an authentic reproduction relationship. Life and truth transference. I'm going to give you some of my life. I'm going to give you some truth. And I'm going to transfer that to you through an authentic reproducing relationship. It's not enough for Josh and I just to spend 10 years together hanging out at Starbucks, chopping up the word together. 
If that's all we did, we are in distinct disobedience to what God is calling us to do. We're called to, Josh, I'm going to hang out with you, and then I'm not going to hang out with you anymore unless you go find somebody else you want to hang out with. You can bring them along. We'll coach you up for a little bit. Then you're going to release them, and I'm kicking you out, and you guys are going to go do this thing together, and you're going to do the same thing with them. And over a period of a few years, he and I together, we might impact 30, 40 people. It's not enough just to sit in our holy huddles one-on-one or one-on-ten. We are called to get out there and chop it up and be messy. And man, it is. It is. Okay. I'm going to give you four practical things and we're going to land this plane. And I want to use Paul as the example because Paul's kind of my hero. I love this guy. Paul never knew Jesus, but he knew of the disciples. He was next generation. He was in the next generation, and and he took it serious because he had guys like Stephen in his life and guys like Barnabas in his life. He had people in his life that were giving him some of these nuggets. Remember at the very beginning of this thing, I told you that Jesus' final message to his men before he ascended is Matthew 28, go and make some disciples, give this stuff away, baptize, teach. Well, Paul is, he's like the example of that. He got the residual effect of that. And so Paul, a generation later, finds himself to kind of be an influencer. And he has this conversation. I think I've mentioned this before. Uh, He has his own disciple, Timothy, in his life. And he says, hey, Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2, the things you've heard from me in the presence of these men and women, these faithful witnesses, entrust these to some other people so they can go teach and train some other people as well. That is the model. Do you see the generational disciple-making? It's not enough to be a disciple of Christ. It's not enough to be a disciple maker of Christ. We're called to be makers of disciple makers. This is the legacy. This is why I can stand up here 2,000 years later. Because somebody saw enough in me, which is shocking, to hang out with me at a McDonald's in Rogers and just spend about a couple years pouring into me. This wasn't on my radar. This was never on my radar. I was never going to do this. I never would have been capable to stand up in front of you. I'm not, probably not capable now. But God in his goodness and his grace just said, oh, well, we're going to hang out at McDonald's and we're going to spend some time in a experiencing God study and we'll see if it wrecks your life. And guess what? It did. Okay. Paul, what did he do? He had this really healthy dissatisfaction with where he was. He had a healthy dissatisfaction. See, before Paul, when he was Saul, he was really dissatisfied with Christian life, wasn't he? Man, he hated Christians. He was a martyr. He stoned them. He murdered them. He loved to put them in jail. He was the antagonist. He was the one. In fact, Acts 9, if you ever read that story, I love that because Ananias is like, no, 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 I don't want that guy in my house. That guy has a reputation. He did have a reputation. And that reputation was, if you were a follower of Christ, if you followed the way, as Scripture calls it, then he was going to come at you. But once he became a follower of Christ. Once he had that experience, that, that dissatisfaction became this healthy dissatisfaction with where he was spiritually. He wanted to grow. It's crucial, though, for all of us, right, because contentment is in there. It's crucial for all of us that we would have this balance, that we would have this balance, that we wouldn't walk around so zealous that we push people away, that we wouldn't be so dissatisfied with where we're at that we're beating ourselves up and letting the enemy have a field day with us. So there's this balance. And what I love about this is in Paul's life, he had this creative tension. And that creative tension was this balance between being positionally perfect in Christ, but also wanting to grow and progress in his faith. 
And every time you read one of his letters to the early church, you can see that in his writing. He was always pushing but staying humble. Pushing but staying humble, which is a great model for us as we invite people into our lives. That we would push but stay humble. He said, I'm not one who's already arrived, nor am I anywhere near perfection. That was his word. But I seek to know the person of Christ better and better. And I want to grasp his purpose within me, for me, so I can have a more complete grip on each day. Those are the words of Paul. He understood his position. Man, he was striving. And so as a Jesus follower, this may may have been in like all of my notes, maybe my favorite little statement in in here today. um, That as a Jesus follower, remember that wherever you find yourself today, wherever you are when you walked in here today, it's not where you could be. And then the margin of difference between where you are and where you could be, what's in the middle, that is the healthy dissatisfaction. That is the spiritual growth. That is the spiritual maturity. That is what we want to move towards. And I like that because that creates a little pressure. And it creates a little, what I would call in my own life, uh, a little spiritual discontentment. A little holy sandpaper. It's a little bit of a spiritual rub on my life that's always kind of pushing me forward. And keeping me motivated because left to my own, I saw the words of Paul, I'm unrighteous, I'm apathetic, I'm sinful, and I need that reminder. So Paul had a, he had this level of healthy uh, dissatisfaction. Number two, he had amazing heartfelt devotion. He was devoted. We are called to be devoted. He, 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 essence, he says, I have one thing to do. My one thing to do, Paul said. In all of these letters, if I could summarize it all, the one thing to do, I've got to make Jesus famous. I've got to make him famous. He's so concentrated, he's so focused, he's so purpose-driven that this vision and focus and concentration are all he can think about. He was a specialist. He was a specialist, and so should we be. His focus was not on a dozen things. He stayed laser beam focused. His vocation was Christ. His purpose was to make him famous. That's it. And we can do that regardless of where your W-2 comes from. You don't have to stand in a church to do that. You don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be a volunteer leading a small group at all. Most of these men that follow Jesus, if not all of these men, their vocation was tax collector, fisherman, oddball, that's who they were, which is kind of why I'm glad I fit in that group, because all that stuff is me, except I don't really fish. I don't have the patience to fish. He was a specialist. Let me give you a silly illustration. Uh, I think maybe growing up in my life, I went to one circus, and I don't think we do circuses anymore, but we've been to some zoos. I'm sure you've been to a zoo, and the whole idea of a lion tamer, you've all seen a lion tamer, at least on TV or somewhere. Lion tamer gets in there, and all of a sudden, he's got this huge beast, and he usually will have like a whip or something in this hand, and he'll have, and you you see the image right now. He's got what in this hand? A stool, right? It's like a three-legged or four-legged stool, and something happens where this huge animal kind of settles down, and, and it actually works. 
And the reason that is, is because the psyche of a lion, this is true, y'all, gets distracted when there's multiple focus points. They can't focus on four or five focal points. They're really good when it's one-on-one, like if they see you, you're done for. But if you can be up there with multiple things going on in your hand, that the lion actually, its energies get neutralized, and it gets neutralized and almost paralyzed in such a way that it appears, quote-unquote, tame. That's a true fact. So, how is Satan referred to in Scripture? Like a roaring lion, right? 1 Peter 5, 8. He's prowling. He's waiting. He's going to devour me. We've all seen those videos, you know, on Discovery. That one that gets away from the herd, the little sheep, he's done for. So there's this metaphor. We stay in the herd, but back to my illustration. So Satan is viewed as, as that prowling, prowling lion. And so as Christians, we could actually neutralize Satan if we focused on multiple or, or, or on, a, on a several things and did them really, really well because he couldn't come at us. That's why we see Jesus in Scripture as this amazing, in Acts, as this great strategist. I need you to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. I need you to be uber-focused. I need you to make disciples. That's all I want you to do. But what ends up happening is we get introverted in our little Christian selves, and we hang out in our churches, and we take our eyes off the prize. And so what does the enemy do? He comes in with a, uh, a whip in this hand and that stool and there's all these focal points and we get distracted and he has a field day and he devours us. But it's supposed to be the other way around. We're supposed to be the ones that are taming him, but we get so distracted. One thing, one thing, one thing, make disciples, give your life away. That's the mandate. That's the model, model the mandate. There's this great power in concentration. We might see some sunshine today. We needed this rain yesterday, but we might see some sunshine today. And we love sun because it brings warmth, it brings growth. But all of us can remember this. If you held a magnifying glass under the sun, we've all did this in science or something, a little experiment, the rays of that sun, when focused and concentrated, they really heat up what's below that magnifying glass, don't they? You can burn a hole in it. And that's what happens when we are laser beam, sunbeam focused on making disciples. You can be a part of a church that makes a massive impact. If your goal is producing leaders, building people, making disciples, rescuing the saints, redeeming lost people, this church is a home for broken people. But it's not a home to stay broken. It's not a place to stay broken. Third one, two more, heavenly direction. Healthy dissatisfaction, heartfelt devotion, and heavenly direction. Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind me, and I'm going to strain forward to what lies ahead. I'm not going to live in the past. My sins need to be forgiven. My sorrows need to be forgotten. And my victories, they need to be forsaken. I'm not going to dwell on all my medals and accolades. I'm not going to dwell on all my brokenness in my past and my sin. Man, if Moses did that, if David did that, if Paul did that, we wouldn't be doing this. We do not dwell. We focus on what's ahead. So I'm telling you, y'all don't know all of my story. You know some of it. Some of you know a lot of it. But if I focused on what was 20 years ago, man, I, I wouldn't even have a job. I wouldn't even be here today for sure wouldn't be standing in front of you today. We're called to forget, to move on. To be a disciple maker means this, that we look past our past. 
We're going to leave here in about 20 minutes, 15 or 20 minutes. Some of you will drive. Some of you will be a passenger. Those of you that are driving, will you leave by looking through the windshield or will you leave by looking through the rearview mirror? You might look in the rearview mirror for a moment, right, so you don't bump into somebody. You might look at your backup camera so you don't back into somebody. But on your way home, you're not driving in reverse. You're looking through what's in front of you. So you know where you're headed. I'll occasionally take a glimpse in the rearview mirror to make sure I don't bump into somebody. But it is not what's going to provide me direction. I am moving and looking forward. Number four, the last one, Paul had this holy determination. This brother was determined. I am going to strain to move forward. Does straining sound like a fun word? You know, I, I, I have determined myself this year. I, I have this, like, weird fear of heights. Um, I don't know why. I just, I just don't like heights. And so I'm like, so I started hanging out at Klein Bentonville so I could start working through my fear of heights. And it was happening. I started out on the kid's side, for those of you all who have been there. I was climbing the Rubik's Cube and doing stuff like that. And then last, last, yesterday I was in Kansas City, and I'm like, I told my wife, I said, hey, we're in the Shields department store. Y'all been to Shields in Kansas City or somewhere else? They have a huge Ferris wheel in there, right? I, I've only ridden a couple of those in my life because I hate Ferris wheels. I find them terrifying. I said, it's a dollar. Let's do it. And we rode the Ferris wheel. And, and I was terrified, like clammy, like sweating. And she looks at me because she's sweet, and she said, man, I love it when you're scared because <laughs> you're a little bit out of control. You're not in control right now. I said, no, I'm not. Don't you dare move in this cart. Because every once in a while she'd move, I'm like, no, we ain't doing that. But I'm determined to gain victory over this stinking fear that I have of heights. I don't like it. I don't like it. I remember a few years ago, I ran the New York City Marathon, and in mile two, I broke my toe. In mile two, kicking the curb. I'm like, doggone, I've got 24 more miles to go, and I spent a lot of money to get here. I am determined to finish this race, even though it's going to be terrible. I'm going to hobble for the next 24 miles. But I was determined. Paul was determined. One of the great tragedies of the Christian life, of our life as believers, that we, we never win any significant victories. We never get any significant hope over, over, over the enemy. We never capture any enemy territory. We never destroy any strongholds of the enemy. We, we, we never see any real victories because we just get lazy and we just get tired. And Paul was determined to see victory. The words used in this text and all throughout the New Testament, they are not casual, relaxed, easygoing words. They are words that motivate and inspire. And there's a lot of uh, athletic illustrations in a lot of Paul's writings because we're just determined to push and to fight. And so I just want to say this. In this whole idea of disciple making and disciple modeling, there is a mandate. The mandate is for us to keep our eyes out there, looking at one another. The model is that we would live it out. And the mandate is that we would have these four things. A healthy dissatisfaction, a heartfelt devotion, a heavenly direction, and that we would have this really holy determination. That we would not quit. That we would strain. That we would press on. That we wouldn't focus on what's behind us, but we would move forward with what is ahead of us. And as followers of Jesus, as Christians, as believers, as followers of Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah, we are square one in the middle of this thing. We are his method. You are his method. And your past, he's going to use that too. There's a lot of things in my past that I didn't want to be part of my ministry. I had no idea 
that God would use some of the things in my past and now use to minister to other people. It's not fun to talk about. And it usually uh, relives a little scar, a little wound that I have to work through myself or with my wife. It's not the ministry I wanted, but it's the ministry I got. Because it's the things that I walk through. Making disciples may seem exceedingly difficult. It may seem altogether impossible. The task of total world impact is a formidable assignment. It really is. But a world full of lost people who don't need know Jesus, that's a pretty forbidding concept. And we're called to do our part. If you've been changed by the gospel, this is the mandate. Look at your mission and vision of this church. We exist. Why do we exist? What do we do every day? We exist for broken people at Grace Hills to find healing in Jesus, to experience authentic community, and to grow spiritually. Why? Why do we do that? So people will know Jesus, discover who he created them to be, and live out their God-given purpose. But if we stayed in our brokenness, if we stayed seeking healing, if we didn't experience authentic community, we would not be the type of church that we need to be. Because once I experience those things, I'm called to go give it away. And that's what it is. That's what discovering who you created them to be, you're created to be a disciple maker. What is your purpose? To make disciples. What should you do with that? To make Jesus famous. This is not complicated, but it is. Let me pray. I'm going to pray that God would move in a big, big way this morning. Father, uh, worship team will lead us. We will pray. We will walk out of here humble, but Lord, we want to walk out of here with that boldness and courage of, of Joshua, that boldness and courage of an Abraham or a Moses, of a Paul, of these disciples. Lord, there is not a person in this room, not one of us, who has this thing figured out. There's not one of us who is worthy of the gift of your son Jesus but we are thankful for it. And I pray, Jesus, for this church, for me, for the staff, for the leadership, for the volunteers, for those who are just figuring this place out for the first time, that we would uh, be so thankful for the work of the cross, that we would not sit idle, that we would not be apathetic, that we would gather, that we would grow together, and we would go out and make an impact in this community, uh, that we would start at home, that we would start across the hall, that we would do something in the city, that we would not sit on this stuff anymore that we would take these words serious. These are your words through your servant, Paul. And that the things that we heard today, that this group of people heard today, that they would find faithful men and women, maybe that they're living with, or that they spend time with, or that they work with, or that they minister with, and they would give this stuff away, that they would teach it and train it and give it away. Lord, we know, we know that we know that you are walking with us. You have said that over and over in your word, that we do not have this task just to do on our own. We don't have the strength to do this. We don't have the, the skills to do this. We don't have the stamina to do this. We don't have the wisdom to do this, but you do. Help us to be available, vessels, just available, to make ourselves available. God, I pray that right now, in this place, right now, that you would move in the heart of each individual so much so that they might even reach out to somebody this week and just say, can we just get coffee? Can we just hang out? That right now you're moving in somebody's heart, that there's somebody in this room that they've noticed, that they admire, that they see something in, that they just want to ask a question. Tell me why it is that I see you love your kids that way. 
Tell me why it is that you seem to have this amazing gift of mercy and grace. I don't have that. Help me with that. You seem to be really bold in certain situations, and, and I just don't have that. Tell me, tell me how, how do I get disciplined enough to spend 10 minutes a day in the Word? Coach me up a little bit. Give me something. May we be a church of, of learners. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be a learner. That none of us would be so arrogant and so egotistical to think that we have it figured out. But yet we would have the boldness and the courage to share when asked. Father, we ask this. We ask that you would move this morning to move in the hearts of all of us. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this place that we could gather. I pray, God, for for this church to be on mission for the purpose of achieving that vision and that you would be made famous and only you. Amen.